My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, today we are joined by an actual professional, and this should be an amusing episode because everybody knows I like to speculate. And therefore, I will probably spend a lot of the show speculating of what I think the law is or could be, only to have my guest correct me. And that guest today is Gordon Firemark, who is an entertainment lawyer out of Hollywood. How are you doing today, Gordon? I'm great, Eric. Thanks for having me. And you're right. I'm going to tell you I can't speculate. So <laughs> if I know, I'll tell you. If I don't, I'll say I don't know. Well, do people drive you crazy? I, I was in the Army way back in the day, and we had a type of person that was nicknamed a shade tree lawyer. Yeah. And they knew every regulation and every way around everything, but they really weren't competent to do anything. Do you deal with a lot of variants of that in the civilian world? Uh, yeah, a couple times a day something comes up, and I have to tell people why they're why they might understand one aspect of something, but there's another one that plays into it or whatever, you know, and with social media, the way it is now, I mean, I'll, <laughs> I'll just say it right out. If you're getting your legal advice from Facebook, you deserve what you get. <laughs> you get line. what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I give out some free advice and I think it's valuable, but uh, generally, yeah, it's worth exactly what you pay for it. So, um, you know, there's there, Facebook is full of people who seem to think they know what copyright law is and how fair use works and those things. And, do you ever get tired of it though? I mean, sure. I just disengage, <laughs> you know, <laughs> too tired for this. Not going to do it today. Okay. okay well, I'm going to come out the gate with um, an odd question and it right. involves the setup we're on right now. When you were on fast lane podcast university, you talked about doing a double ender. Now, a lot of us podcasters will ask the other end. Let's say it's a co-host or a guest to double end. This is also done by NPR. They will send a technician out to a house yeah. who will hold a recorder in front of the guest. And then they will speak over the phone, but yeah. the people will be recorded locally. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned though, if you were actually recording it on your computer, there may be a question of ownership. Did you actually own half of the interview? You know? Yeah, <laughs> I did say that. Um, that. That's a function of, of the way copyright law works and, and authorship is ownership. And so when we get into that, we have to examine, well, who is the author of the recording in question? And if I'm the person who owns the equipment and pushes the red button that starts the recording, then there's at least a strong argument that I'm the author, at least of that recording. So my side of the recording per se. Um, and so that's where that discussion comes from. Well, cool. I want to take it and go down that a little bit because I love okay. rabbit holes. And to me, the fun <laughs> stuff is in the gray areas. Yeah. Now I'm using a tool called Squadcast. Mm -hmm. The feature of Squadcast is you'll see that there's a record light right yeah. now that you're staring at. I was late in turning it on, but fortunately I have another recording going. But Squadcast is actually recording your side on your equipment right yep. now. Now, how would this fall in a gray area? Because I pressed the record button. Yeah, that's there. There was no volitional act on my part to make the recording begin. And in fact, I should have noticed, but didn't that you hadn't started it. Uh, <laughs> so be it. Um, so I think that, you know, we're using your account with Squadcast and Squadcast isn't uh, taking permanent possession of any resources on my equipment. 
Uh, I mean, it may be a fragment of, you know, a little hard disk space or something that, that gets set aside for a while, but eventually that comes back to me and I don't have any control over that. So I think okay. that you are the one in control, you and Squadcast, and uh, those recordings then, um, I, I would say it's a pretty solid argument that they belong to you. Uh, I, I guess a crafty lawyer could make the argument either way. Well, and that, that's... Is that something that you face or and maybe makes your job even more interesting is when you have things like technology, which is almost changing the rules and perception of law because, you know, things like copyright and what is an object. My my wife is a library director. Yeah. Here's a perfect example. There are digital services for reading a library book Mm -hmm. and there is a shall we say an expiration on the file. But it's just a file. It's not mm. technically like a book you take out of the library and you go right. home. Now it's not on the shelf. It's just a file, which can be copied mm. a million times. It's nothing else. So you're actually putting kind of a false or a parameter on it to try to emulate something else. Well, I mean, it is a digital rights managed thing. So there is a technology involved in making sure that only the authorized number of copies of that file are in circulation at any given time. But yeah, technology, I mean, we technology is, is racing ahead of the law and in, in a lot of ways just of the way society operates. And so we are making our way through this swamp of stuff all the time and uh, uh, trying to catch up. I think the law does a pretty good job of of catching up eventually, but it does take a while. And, and um, it's the nature of the way the law is built is we try not to be single case scenario focus we try to to anticipate okay this has broader implications and so we're going to build a law that can, it has some flexibility but the, that's where loopholes come from and so uh yeah it, it's it's a battle <laughs> it's always a battle what i always worry that when you write something to close a loophole you wind up having unforeseen consequences all the time too that's a law too, the un- the unforeseen consequences. So uh, <laughs> uh, the law of unforeseen consequences, uh, you know, um, yeah, that's the nature of it. And then, and that's, Hey, hey if, if everything could be handled in one fell swoop, we'd handle it and there would be no need for government forever after that. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, there are some who argue for that right now. <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> There's a whole political party. Um, or, or once every 10 years, we'll convene a Congress for a year fix everything that's broken and then expand <laughs> for a while. <laughs> you know, I think going to work. Somebody suggested this idea and I thought it might be a cool one that you had a roaming Congress that they did not meet in DC. They had to meet all around the country and they had to spend the majority of their time in their home district. Have you ever noticed that the courts of appeal in the United States are called circuit courts? Mm-hmm. The, the circuit courts were literally traveling courts of groups of judges that would go from place to place and handle a region. So here in the ninth circuit, we have seven States or something like that, that are covered by the ninth circuit court of appeals. And at one time it was literally a a roving court. Uh, So if you were waiting for your appeal, you had to wait for the the court to show up in your County or your jurisdiction. Well, that's awesome. Um, And it also sounds almost like circus too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I got to take variations on a theme. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Now, I like to jump around, and sure. I love talking about topical things. Mm-hmm. Lately, there's some heavy accusations and problems going around about plagiarism. Yeah. 
and specifically Crime Junkie, the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, not crediting work. Now, this is something I'd like to dig in with you on because I have an understanding, but I could be completely off. And from what my understanding is, I'm not going to say I can lift somebody's work, but I can quote somebody's work extremely heavily if I just stayed out, state as reporter fill in the blank says in publication fill in the blank blah 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 blah. But, yes and no. <laughs> okay, good. That's yeah. so. I want to make a distinction. You know, there's a dis- a difference between plagiarism, which is sort of a, an academic, journalistic, moralistic mm-hmm. kind of a of a determination, and copyright infringement, which is a legalistic one. Uh, copyright infringement, there's a specific test for whether or not a copyright's been infringed. Is it, did the person or people have some access to the material and is it substantial, is the new one substantially similar to the previous one? If so, the, that substantial similarity establishes copying. And if, if okay. you copy without permission, then that's infringement. What happens in plagiarism though, is that it may not be outright copying, but it's, you get the inspiration, you get, you use the, the original as the source material, but you put it into your own words. So it's no longer substantially similar in terms of the exact wording of the, of the statement or something like that. And so uh, plagiarism becomes an issue because it's intellectually dishonest, I guess, to say, mm-hmm. to, to hold something out as being your own original work, or I did the research when in fact, all you're doing is culling stuff from somebody else's work without, giving it attribution. So attribution is really what plagiarism talks about. But when you get to the point, I mean, look, you know, giving attribution isn't going to be enough if you then uh, read the entire book, (laughs) you know, if I say, well, John Steinbeck wrote of mice and men and here we go. (laughs) And then you read the whole book. You're still infringing the copyright. Okay. That makes sense. As long as you are shaping it or, or giving something to it. And, And, that gets into, I guess, the fair use argument, which I know you love hearing. <laughs> um, and I do want to pivot on that, too. Yeah. If you are quoting John Steinbeck for a paragraph and then mm-hmm. reflecting on that paragraph and then another author and another one and reflecting why the two concepts are related, now yeah. we're absolutely in fair use territory then, right? With attributions? I, I'm never going to say absolutely, but but More probably. likely. Yeah, because, again, with the attribution helps, although sometimes attribution can be a smoking gun. So we have to be careful about that, because if you, you know, again, if you say I got this from so and so and so and so feels that you've taken more than is a fair use kind of an amount or for an improper purpose or something, then now you've got the evidence that you knew what you were doing was wrong or at least that you should have asked for permission. So that's the smoking gun argument. But generally, attribution is a good idea. And when you're, as you said, comparing and contrasting a number of different works that maybe have quotes that all relate to a same principle or theme or something like that, yeah, that's what fair use is about. We're we're having a scholarly or or at least a highly intellectual conversation or discussion about something. It's transformed from just a passage from a piece of literature to uh, uh, the fodder for this intellectual discussion. And so that's where fair use comes into play for sure. Okay, and would criticism be considered an original fair use case? As in, we'll, we'll just go right to music. Yeah. Uh, I I want to cover a song, but it's on the purposes of the methodology of the song and how it is mm-hmm. written, and pieces of it I am stating 
I don't know, whatever chord structure is being used for this section and why they used it or influence or the history behind it, things like that. Would that lean into more of a fair use te- territory or infringement territory? Yeah. So one of the one of the seminal fair use cases in recent history is is a um, <clears throat> a music case involving two live crews adaptation or or infringement, if you will, of uh, Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, and in it they did a very uh, well, the Orbison folks would call it crass or, or, oh. you know, uh, there were, there was language and, and themes in it. They were very different from what Roy Orbison intended. And the Supreme court came out and, and said, yeah, this is a fair use. Okay. And, uh, well, did it yeah, fall so, under parody or something? <clears throat> well, it, sort of, it, it, this wasn't really a parody, but they were nevertheless commenting on the original by doing what they did with it. They said, oh, okay, so here's this cute little song about this guy who's, who's all caught up in this woman's look and, and walk and whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's our take on it. Ah. And so they were criticizing the vanillaness maybe of the, of the Orbison right. version. It was you innocent know. and they kind of, okay. right. And, and so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so welcome to the nineties or eighties or whatever it was, uh, was sort of their approach. And uh, you know, it was a rapper, a rap group that did it. And it was very different. The Orbison estate sued and lost ultimately at the Supreme court. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, to continue down that lane, too, I don't know if I'm stating the right way, but (laughs) the final consideration of fair use is that it's an affirmative defense versus um, a shield. So Mm -hmm. you may be able to do it, but you've got to go to court to prove you're right if they come after you. Right. Yeah. I mean, fair use because, well, because it's a defense in the law. So that means first someone has to accuse you of infringement and then you get to say, no, it's fair use. That means you have to prove it. They have to prove that there's substantial similarity in copying, you know, copying. And then you get to come in and say, but that's okay because essentially, and then you go through this four factor test that has to be done on every individual basis. There's no rules of thumb for fair use. And so that's why fair use, I wouldn't tell anybody, (laughs) any podcaster, at least anybody uh, without some real resources uh, to rely on fair use as a defense, unless there's no other hope. Um, so going and choosing to, to make a copy of something or use a piece of music or video or something that belongs to somebody else, the, the conservative legal advice is always go get permission. Um, and unless, you know, there's something that tells us that permission would absolutely not be forthcoming. And we still feel there's a, a need to have the conversation about this stuff. That's where the fair use defense comes from is the, the conflict between a copyright law, which restricts speech. Mm -hmm. You can't copy, (laughs) And the First Amendment, which says you have a right to free speech. Now, what are the four factors? So the four factors are uh, the uh, purpose and character of the alleged infringing use. So that's number one. That's where we get into whether it's cultural criticism or commentary or educational use or things like that, newsworthiness, that kind of stuff. The second factor is the amount and substantiality of the portion that's taken. So the more you take, the less likely it's going to be determined to be a fair use. Uh, although it's possible that you could have a taking of the entire thing, like in the case mm-hmm. of Pretty Woman, right? Or the Weird Al Yankovic parodies, right? Um, the third factor is the nature of the original. And in that we sort of are comparing it to what's the nature of the new one. Is there some kind of a transformation or, or significant mm-hmm. difference? If they're both just a piece of music being sold commercially, then it might weigh against defining a fair use. And then the fourth one is the impact on the market for the original. 
And uh, that's where people get into the argument. Well, I'm not making any money from it. Doesn't really matter whether you're <laughs> making money. It's whether they're losing money. <laughs> Which I actually can see just because you don't make money on it. If you're giving something away free and it dilutes the right. market for what they're selling, you have, in effect, destroyed their property or yep. or have yeah. caused damage, potentially. Yeah, if I go get a copy of the latest feature film that's coming out in the theaters and I project it up on the side of my barn every night and let people come and watch it for free. Great analogy. The people who would have paid for tickets didn't. There's an impact on the market. And, and speaking of, of lack of money... The fact that you represent podcasters, is that part of your pro bono work? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I wish I could say it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I can't see I'm seeing you talking to an entertainment lawyer in freaking LA area as if, yeah, you're going to make a lot off of podcasters. You know what? I mean, there is something to be said. It is a volume business. It's not about big <laughs> jobs for for one client necessarily. But I mean, look, there are some some people in the podcasting space that are very big and making sure. a lot of money, and uh, you know they have both deals and they have <clears throat> yeah. And we can both <laughs> tell you who they are, but uh, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> no, uh, the fact of it is, I'm I do want to help people who are in the. In this, and I, my whole career has been, I've been working in independent film and live theater. These are all areas where people with limited resources are creating art, creating conversation, having, you know, doing important work from a social standpoint. And that's sort of my, my mission in, in life is to help make that possible and help foster an environment where these people can do their work safely and effectively. Uh, that said, I do have to charge for my time and, and, uh, yeah, podcasters, <laughs> they do pay me, but, uh, it's not a bra- a, a bank breaker. <laughs> it's a sliding scale. So uh, like you that. sort of treat it, I guess, like the uh, record industry or publishing industry where you have heavier clients that pay a lot more and that helps you to, to a certain extent. And, and also, back. you know, the, the reality is there isn't that much that the average, you know, do-it-yourself hobbyist podcaster has where there, there isn't a lot of legal heavy lifting in that space. So they don't need me for much. Hmm. Uh, and the ones who need me for a lot are, you know, they're, they're paying for, for that. But, um, you know, I make my living doing all kinds of different work. Podcasting is, is a, a pet project, I guess you could say for me. And, and I'm happy to be of help, um, to people who need and, and can afford it. But the good news is I try to make sure they can afford it. <laughs> so you have fun with it. I do. Yeah. You know, I'm a podcaster myself. I love it. So, um, yeah, I'm all about helping folks, like I said, create great stuff. And from what I understand, you've been in it for a minute, influenced by Leo Laporte. Yeah. Um, uh, I, yeah, I was watching Leo when he was doing the screensavers on television mm-hmm. back in the, I guess that was the not nineties, late nineties, early two thousand, somewhere around there. Yeah. And, um, when this, when the, uh, what was it called? Tech TV or G4, whatever started sort of going the other direction. He went and started podcasting mm-hmm. and I thought, well, that's interesting. What's this thing? And then I got invited to be on a podcast with a guy, um, uh, who is, you know, in, in the video business, he, I mean, the, he did a podcast about digital video. Let me put it that okay. way. And he brought me on as a guest expert every few weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got the bug hooked up mics to my computer. And we here, we were doing these Skype calls every couple of weeks and uh, pretty soon I had the bug and then he decided to take his show in a different direction. And I was 
looking around going, what happened? <laughs> so mm. <laughs> I went and found a co-host and we created a show called Entertainment Law Update. And we recorded our 113th monthly episode. Uh, or actually tomorrow we record our 113th monthly episode. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And you have a whole team working with you. Yeah. I mean, it's me and a co-host and um, a, a team of some of them are lawyers and some of them are law students. One of them is a retired lawyer. Uh, we've got about six or seven volunteers who who help us to spot the stories, work them up as summaries and do the do some of the analysis so that uh, Tamara, my co-host, and I can sound like we really know what we're talking about when we do, on, do the show. <laughs> Well, no, I think that's smart. Um, that speaking of trying to be smart, I yeah. outsource questions too where I can. So one of them I have is a, a YouTuber who has a channel Viva Fry. Yeah. He's David Fryhide. He's a lawyer out of Montreal, mm. and he was curious if you knew about and had any opinions on the uh, Katy Perry copyright decision. We covered the Katy Perry copyright decision on my uh, on episode 112 of our podcast so about three weeks ago. We ah. talked at some length about it. Um, we are both my co-hosts and I are of the opinion that this is not over. There will be appeals. There will be a lot of uh, hand wringing about it. I think it was a wrongly decided case. Um, Can you give a brief synopsis of? Oh, no, I should have known you were going to ask. Uh, <laughs> you know the fact the facts of it are not off the tip of my tongue right now, but basically it was this Christian songwriter who claimed that one of Katy Perry's big hit songs from a few years ago had been basically lifted from his Christian song. Uh, mm-hmm. And it came down, remember I said there was that access and substantial similarity thing, and mm-hmm. um, in order to prove access, he asked the court to draw the inference that because Katy Perry had started out as a Christian performer, she must have heard the song. And uh, his, her team must have heard the song. Uh, and I don't believe there was any true evidence presented that that was actually the case. So it was an inference. Uh, and the similarities between the two songs was like four note, a four note sequence, uh, you hmm. know, a rhythmic thing. And so, um, the jury was persuaded, I guess, that there was an infringement that went on, but there's some question in my mind and, and a lot of commentators mind over whether, uh, that's enough to be considered original work that can be infringed in the first place. That's interesting. Could he have really, yeah. Um, that, that makes me you know, think of another one that went the opposite <clears throat> way. Um, Led Zeppelin and spirit. Well, that's right. That's the backdrop against which this case is going forward. And, and uh, that case is, is, uh, either on appeal or the appeals just been, yeah, it's on appeal right now. We're expecting the uh, the ruling, the en banc ruling, which means the whole Ninth Circuit Court, all mm-hmm. 19, 13 judges, whatever it is, uh, will be ruling on that very soon. And we'll see what happens there. I think it's going to go to a new trial over whether I may be I'm, I'm confusing my timelines, but sure. there's going to be a new trial over over the question of, of infringement of the of the Led Zeppelin thing. Um, and the Katy Perry thing will probably be appealed and, and, uh, have a, uh, probably a new trial there as well. The, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that what was allegedly taken from the Christian singers work into the Katy Perry piece is, uh, too little to really amount to an infringement. It's just one of the building blocks of music essentially. So let's compare that to the Zeppelin and, um, spirit Taurus case. Okay. That one does seem to be a tighter, just, you know, from what I've read in the sense that mm-hmm. there's some very distinct similarities yeah. and they toured together. 
Yeah. When the yeah, access uh, is not an issue that as far as <laughs> I know in that case, the similarities are, are there. But again, I think what was going on in that case was a question of whether or not the things that were similar are sort of fundamental building blocks as well. And that was part of what went on in the Marvin Gaye, um, uh, blurred lines case against Robin Thicke also, mm. which most music lawyer commentators feel was a wrongly decided case as well, or at least a badly decided case. And so we're in a, Tough time in music copyright. Well, and Led Zeppelin has a, a pattern of behavior that may be yes. coming into that. They they knowingly lifted some blues songs. Yeah, and well, have, and that's have, another thing. had to pay. Yeah, although that's another thing where a blues riff is the kind of thing that might very well be considered a building block. You know, could, there is such sure. a thing as a basic blues twelve bar chord, a twelve bar. Uh, sequence you know phrase and so yeah they used the blues you know look that's the nature of music it's the nature of all art really is to oh, to true. to build on what's gone before and so copyright law is again sort of a, a, a conflicting principle there and so that's what these court that's why i said we're constantly adapting and catching up right um, <laughs> it gives you material for a show <laughs> yeah thank god <laughs> and and frankly reason to have a career as a lawyer <laughs> well there is that and you could argue everything i guess both directions yeah either way and from what i understand about the legal community it's interesting to me because i feel like it's not necessarily specifically about the truth it's about who presents a better argument in the end you know the altruist in me likes to think there's such a thing as the truth. I think there's actually several versions of the truth. Uh-huh. Uh, you have the plaintiff's <laughs> version, the defense's version, the judge's version, the jury's version, and ultimately the version that society pays to, attention to. And they may be, they may you know be five different versions. Uh, reality, you know, the real the real truth is most of everything lines up, and there are subtle nuances in between things. And uh, yeah, that you know that's the way our system is designed is to to either find middle ground or in the egregious cases cases to say, Hey defendant, you're wrong. And I guess that's what settlements are about. Yeah. It's kind of a, okay. Cut your losses. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, sometimes it's about cutting losses early on. You know, most settlements happen very early in the lawsuit. Sometimes, you know, before the world has ever heard there's been a lawsuit. Um, the proverbial settlement on the courthouse steps is not a very common thing. Most cases never get that far. So, well, it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, we try to. Yeah, well, we, yeah. The the lawyers get paid. <laughs> yeah, I have to pick on you a little bit. Yeah. It's mandatory. I know you. You know what? We do hard work that nobody else wants to touch. Frankly, <laughs> well, there's a, a funny thing about lawyers, and that's you know everybody quote unquote hates lawyers, but we all love our lawyer, right? So there's it, no good lawyer except your lawyer. Exactly. Right, and hopefully he's good. And while we're talking about um libel and slander and things like that (laughs) quick pivot uh another podcaster friend of mine uh tyson franklin of it's no secret and podiatry legends he's out of australia so whatever you answer it may not even matter for him anyway they probably just turn it all upside down and it works oh there you go hot as cold (laughs) sorry tyson (laughs) his um very eloquent question was if you bag someone on a podcast can you get in trouble or are you allowed to have an opinion well, there's a difference between expressing an opinion and expressing a a, 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 
a bit of information as fact. And okay. under certainly American uh, libel and slander law, and that's derived from the, the British common law principles on this stuff. And so happens that the Australian rules are basically derived from there okay. too. Uh, libel and slander are, are uh, flip sides of the coin. Slander is the oral spoken. If I, you know, just two people sitting around talking and one says something false about the other, <laughs> that might be slander. Libel is when you have technology involved or mass media, or you spoke into a large group or something like that. So, so podcast would be libel. It would be libel. Yeah. Okay. That's L I B E L. Right. Um, oh, you're not uh, going to spell the Trump way. No, I'm not going to spell it because you'd be liable to be wrong. <laughs> Correct. So, libel is the false statement of a factual nature that's made about a person that hurts their reputation or standing in the community. Okay. So, falsity is the is the the key there. Uh, but if it's not factual, like I'm just, it's obvious that it's a joke, right? I see. Or it's obvious that it's opinion. Well, I'm a, I'm entitled to have an opinion that may or may not be the truth. In my opinion, so-and-so is a dirtbag. That's an opinion statement. Okay. I was going to ask. So you could say somebody's an asshat. Yeah. That's a problem. But if you say that they're a thief. Well, even if I say that they're a thief, if I don't give it some some more backup about, well, what am I specifically talking about? If I say somebody's a child molester, um, you know, or if I, you know, what a molester that kid seems to, will, will probably turn out to be. Uh, that's nothing. But if I say, you know, this is a kid who is torturing his cats at home and, you know, he's killing wild animals that he finds out in the woods. And, uh, you know, this is the making of a child molester. That's going to be liable because now we're starting to back it up with sort of factual kinds of information. Hmm. So it's possible for, an, for something couched as opinion to still seem factual or something factual to seem like an opinion. And, uh, so again, it's one of those things. That's why we have juries, and it's not just a, a a bright line drawn that shows us where where the what you can step over, you know. And it's also a factor too whether they're a, a public figure versus a, a private citizen too, correct? So, so yeah, here in the U.S., uh, the public figure or government official has an additional hurdle to to jump. That is to prove not only was the f- statement false and injurious to reputation and all that, but also that the person making the statement knew that it was false or acted with a reckless disregard for truth. That's called actual malice. And um, those of us at a certain age will remember a Paul Newman, Sally Field movie called uh, Absence of Malice. Mm. That was all, all, what it, all that it was about was this libel case. So, uh, yeah, that malice uh, standard means that if you're in the public eye, you, you got to have a thicker skin about these things. You have to stand up to, uh, um, to a, a higher level of scrutiny and more people expressing opinion about you and those kinds of things. And frankly, that's what our current president seems to want to, uh, loosen up in the <laughs> space of, of, uh, defamation law. Right. He's trying to make it more actionable. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He, cause he's a public figure. He doesn't want to have to jump through that hoop. Well, well not, not completely okay. surprising. Right. But the funny thing is that he potentially could be prosecuted under his same uh, situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, don't go painting a target on your back and then complaining that people are shooting at you. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So now to a couple more questions. One, I know that you're pretty big on and it's whether guests should sign an agreement or. Yeah what you recommend for when they come on. Like I sent you no agreement, so completely open. (laughs) 
Right. So I'm going to say right now that you have my permission to use the material we record today in whatever manner you choose, as long as you do it, you know, honorably, uh, in any media forever and ever without having to pay me anything. Okay. So that's the, the kind of release language that we need. Now I spoke it out and I'm, I'm a lawyer who does this stuff. So I'm, I have a pretty good checklist of the issues in my head to, to express. Right. My concern is most podcast hosts aren't going to ask the question in such a way that the yes covers all the bases. Gotcha. Uh, so, you know, there, look, there are four or five sort of components to what I just did in the release. Um, that you have the permission to record me, that you have the permission to use it in any way, in any media, forever and ever, throughout the universe. Now, that's huge, so, and I wanted to ask that because yeah. um, I will be writing a book. Yeah. And it would be very handy if I had transcripts of the interviews, but now I'm I'm jumping from the recorded session, yeah, which we had essentially a, a verbal yeah. agreement or whatever to yeah. do, to now being printed word. Exactly. So that's one of the reasons why I feel that the, the every podcast guest should sign a release form that authorizes the, the host, the, the author of the recording to use it in any medium. And that's where you could transcribe it and use it in a book or, or, um, yeah, paint it on the wall of a building, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever you wanted to do that way you don't have that concern later on where some guest comes on and says, well, you didn't tell me you were going to make a book and sell it. I want a piece of the money. Or better yet, I want to enjoin you from selling your book. So would you recommend, we'll just use my case there, yeah. specifically that I send out a release and say, I will be working on the book and I would like to have your permission to use this. I think in your scenario, since you haven't already gotten the releases, I, I, I rarely suggest go back and get releases from people until and unless you're sort of into the new medium. Mm-hmm. So rather than, rather than going and asking all of your guests, hey, can I use this stuff? you might go ahead and write the book and then send them the relevant passage and say, I'm putting together a book. This is from our interview. Here's what you said. Do you mind that I include it in my book mm. and then get them to say yes to that. Okay. Uh, and that way you're only asking the ones you actually use and you know, that kind of thing. So it's a more economical approach Okay. Uh, after the fact, but easier to ask cases. forgiveness and permission well yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah. well send them uh, a book too oh, and i'd love well, to right, send exactly. you a copy of the book too please yeah, uh, yeah i mean that's sort of the gracious thing to do isn't it so i mean best case scenario you get something in writing up front uh it, it doesn't have to be a printed piece of paper with blue wet ink on it but i love that approach because it, it imparts a certain seriousness to the transaction mm-hmm. But you could use one of those digital signature systems or you could use a web form where they check a box and type their name or something saying, I understand. And uh, yeah, I, I have a, a release that I recommend everybody use and you can get it for free if you go to podcastrelease.com and uh, uh, give me your email address and I'll send you the, the form. And uh, I, 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 this is sort of my crusade. I want everybody using releases and I'll tell you this came, it's a variation on the theme that just came up in the, in the media this last week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the concerns is that somebody who you had on your show six months, a year, three years, five years ago comes out of the woodwork and says, you know what? I need you to take down that episode that I was on back in, you know, 2019, you know, 2014 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you've got now a hassle of having to go do it. It question, it's a, it raises questions about the integrity of your show and your journalism, if you consider yourself a journalist. Um, 
and you may be taking down valuable content that you've maybe you had advertisers that are expecting that stuff to stay evergreen and now they're they paid for an ad for something that's no longer available that leads to another question what about the takedown part that you don't control and and i'm throwing this out there because yeah. uh for example iHeartRadio will yeah. copy your file so if you agree with them to mm-hmm. publish it or whatever they actually make a copy of it so you don't yeah. really have control over their catalog yeah now in itunes or whatever you delete it from your host boom it'll start yeah propagating um, out right so that's one of the problems is even if you do take it down then have you fully complied with that request if iheart still has a copy do you have to now jump through hoops to get those other hosts to take it down all those kinds of things but uh, personally i think that if i'm investing in making a, a media production which is after all what a podcast is mm-hmm. then i want to maximize my return on investment by oh, having sure. making sure it's up there forever and frankly i think that there's a journalistic integrity we talked about plagiarism earlier journalistic integrity is an important thing uh, if i take down an episode because someone who was in it no longer likes what they said well mm-hmm. what they said may be important and relevant and newsworthy and that's what's come up in the recent weeks with this uh i've forgotten his name now from saturday night live who uh yeah was on the, a podcast um, a few years ago and used some racial epithets he just and, got fired uh, i think he got fired uh, now, I don't know that he and his team ever went and asked the podcasters to take that episode down, but it's possible they could have. Right. And could they now be saying to him, hey, to the podcaster, hey, I got fired and it's your fault because your podcast episode was still up even after I asked you to take it down. That's interesting. Now, so if they had that, a release and said, no, you said we could do it. You stand by what you, you know. So as as a lawyer, though, what do you recommend to the 99.999% of us who don't have a release on the older episodes, yeah. my personal impulse would be just to take it down and maybe leave a 30 second say episode saying I took this down. The guest didn't want it up anymore. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the path of least resistance from a cost pers- you know, dollars and cents perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think it, it raises questions about, call it journalistic integrity if you want not 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 to cast aspersions on your integrity for for taking a pragmatic approach like that but if i'm doing journalism if i feel that what i got from that interview is important for people to hear and i take it down then i'm gonna am i not saying that really none of what i do is that important you know i i believe in the you know hills to die on of course (laughs) and 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 so that's right and that and that's a decision that every podcaster needs to make for him or herself which ones are the hills to die on uh, so I see where you're uh, coming from now. If it was an important social message mm-hmm. or, or something that was well, of journalistic significance, yeah. So let me give you an example. I had a, a, this is one of the early cases that I became aware of that I worked on. Uh, podcaster had a show around parenting and uh, child rearing, right. mostly about infancy and you know raising babies. And she had a host. Uh, she had a guest on her show early in the life of the podcast mm-hmm. uh, who was a lactation expert all about breastfeeding and the importance of the, the nurturing relationship with mom and, and baby having that direct contact. Mm-hmm. And she was very anti uh, formula. Okay. And, you know, made that very clear in her presentation. Well, a couple of years go by and this one was on two episodes of the show. A couple of years go by and the hosts uh, call it the editorial slant of the show had shifted a bit into a more balanced approach and wanted to present the other side. Right. And in fact, took a sponsor that was in the 
baby formula business, among other things. Gotcha. And uh, this guest came and said, you will take those episodes down immediately. You will have no reference to me whatsoever on your website at all. This host is, was trained as a journalist and, and uh, came to me and we talked it over. And she says, look, I'm going to ask her to, to issue a statement to replace the site, to replace those episodes, to explain why these episodes on lactation are no longer available. Right. And the guest refused and said, if you don't take it down immediately, I'm going to sue you. And then did. Filed a lawsuit against the client for, I think it was in the millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is not a, a person who's able to pay for that kind of a, a defense or those kinds of sure. judgments. And so, so ended up ultimately ended up settling the case with, uh, with this guest paid out some money and ended up taking the episodes down and put up her own statement of why the episodes were gone. I was but, curious. Could you put the takedown notice up? <laughs> I just say, but it's like that well, would almost be my response to be this episode is gone because I am responding to, and then read the yeah. takedown notice. We got this letter. Well, so, so what was going on with this particular guest was saying, <laughs> you don't even have the right to use my name anymore, which is kind of weird. Well, but this woman said she wanted nothing to show. If you Google search her name and the word formula, it should not show up on the same page together ever. <laughs> that kind of thing. That's passion. So, yeah. Well, and more power to her, but, you know, had she signed a release, this guest, this host would never have had the problem, would have been able to keep it up and just say, nope, not going to take it down. Sorry. Right. Uh, it would have been her discretion. Now, if someone right. you like comes to you and says, yeah, I know I signed a release and I know we have this, this arrangement, but this is hurting me. And here's why you can still choose to take it down. Right. A good example. But of you that. want that choice to be yours, not the guests. Right. I, I, I know somebody um, who took down an episode because it had a reference to a, a religion as a cult type of environment yeah. and there's physical safety concerns. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think we do have a responsibility. Um, everybody does, but uh, media people in, in particular have a responsibility to, um, you know, protect our, our audience and our guests and ourselves and our families, frankly. And if you get a, a real threat to, to your physical safety, of course, you know, you do the right thing to take care of yourself. And, um, you know, there are some journalists out there who would say, no, this is news too. Right. I'm going to, you know, but again, that's somebody making an informed decision, hopefully from a principled point of view, uh, about keeping something up, um, for the sake of the, of the larger conversation. But yeah, that's, well, darn it. I'm going to keep this up no matter what you say. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now. I want to pivot into a last subject. This is actually what kind of put us together. A previous yeah. guest on the show, Tom Schwab yeah. of interview. Hi, Tom. <laughs> hey, interview valet yeah. wanted to put us together. I guess you guys were yeah. speaking together at podcast mm-hmm. movement about, well, we'll call it pay to play or payola, but the basic premise is there are podcast hosts out there mm-hmm. who are charging guests to come on the show. And there are two sides to the issue. Mm -hmm. There are podcast hosts who say, Hey, you know, it's my bandwidth. I do all the advertising. I do all the work. I'm helping build the reputation and promote the guest product or brand or message. I deserve some compensation for my efforts. And then there's the other side who feels that, if you are charging guests to be on your show, you are now an infomercial. Hmm. 
And I think that both sides have a point, Mm -hmm. but I think there are possibly legal issues that could come up. And thus, that's why you're here specifically disclosure. Yeah. I mean, I think, okay. So there, first of all, I'm, I agree that both of those points of view are valid. Uh, If I have built a platform and I'm, and you have asked me, Hey, I'd like to use your platform to promote my stuff. Then I think it is reasonable for me to say, okay, great. Pay for some access to the platform. Um, and you know, the flip side is the other, you know, some people are building their platform by relying on their guests to attract an audience. Sure. So it goes both ways. Um, there are rules here in the U S that say that if you are compensated for something that you say in your show, that you are supposed to make a disclosure telling your audience so that there's transparency. You hear it all the time. Today's show is brought to you by audible. We're recommending this book. And if you download it and get your free trial with audible, we will get a a little affiliate payment. And it won't cost you anything more, but it'll be a great way to say thank you to us for the show. So please use our link. That is the kind of disclosure that gets made when you have an affiliate relationship. Well, right. if somebody has paid you to come on your show, I think it's the same. And I, I'm not aware of any cases where the government has come in and said, you have to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the law says that you have to, and the government just hasn't bothered to address it with anybody. I think most of the time it's usually pretty obvious. But if a, if a book author comes on my show and we talk about the book and I'm saying, oh, it's such a great book. Da, 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 tell me why you did this. And, what, and we spend an hour talking about your book. And I don't tell my audience, by the way, Eric paid me for the opportunity to come on the show today. Right. Then I'm lying to my audience. Essentially. I mean, it's a lie of omission, but that audience has a right to know before they go out and buy the book that this hour of content that they just heard was funded by the person who's trying to sell me a book. Right. I totally agree. So that's where the disclosure comes in. And look, you you can finesse it and the disclosures can be done in in a clever way or whatever, as long as it's um, clear and conspicuous um, in in the eyes of the legal standard, a clear and conspicuous message indicating the source of the comp or the fact of the compensation. How about, I'm going to throw them out there because I like gray areas, Mm -hmm. as I said earlier. What about now? I've seen this with uh, Adam Carolla specifically, and I don't remember exactly which one it was. So I'm going to throw out a sponsor name, but it may not be that name. I I have to preface this. Adam Carolla was once a client of mine, and I have to be very careful. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Um, we'll, We'll talk about any podcaster, but I think what he did seems legitimate to me, but it, I, I can see where it might blur it a little where you have a sponsor who sponsors a show and you're doing ad reads on their product show after show, after show, after show. And then a vice president or a senior level person at the company comes on as a guest for a segment. Now that's kind of blurring the line a little bit because you do have a relationship with them. Yeah. They, in essence, aren't directly paying you for their time, but they sort of are through the ads. It, mm-hmm. Is that allowable or is it just kind of one of those hard, muddy, you know, things? you know, it's a, it's a, you're right. It's a gray area. I think that if I was giving the advice to the podcast host in this scenario, I would probably say, 
say something that indicates that this person that you're now having as a guest is in fact the executive or an employee or the owner of the company that is the sponsor of your show. Okay. You know? So, and if you listen to the way the professional journalists do it, uh, you know, like NPR will sometimes be talking about a particular, uh, a particular company. And then either before or after the, the discussion, they'll say, and in the interest of full disclosure, we should tell you that such and such pharmaceuticals is an underwriter for NPR. Okay, so if you say, today I've got Bill Smith on, he's president of this tequila company, you know I plug this every day. We love this tequila, and -hmm. they've been great to us. Would probably cover it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's an endorsement of the product as well as, you know, a sponsorship message and endorsement are a little bit different things, but yeah, I think that's the right way to go. But I'm Uh, disclosing a business relationship. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, that's kind of where I was going. Now, there is a particular scenario, I'm not going to name names on this one, but I find it a an interesting setup where there is a group of podcasters who are paid a fee to do interviews for people who have paid for the opportunity hmm. to be interviewed by a group of podcasters. Okay. One of the podcasters is a major podcaster. The other ones aren't as big. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering that by itself, if they were paying that podcaster directly, that would be one thing. But the podcaster owns an establishment. And I believe that the businesses or the people are paying the establishment or the partner (laughs) for the time that they happen to align with these other podcasters. Is this sound legal or does it sound convoluted enough they might be able to slide through? I'm not sure I'm following exactly what's going on, <laughs> but it sounds like the kind of thing where a disclosure is appropriate. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I wouldn't, if I, if I, if these were my clients, if any of these parties were my clients and, and I found out about this, I would probably say, you know, you, you know, you have to say something you say, you have to let the audience know that there's money changing hands somewhere or value changing hands. You know, we're so glad so-and-so's come on our show today. As you know, they're, you know, they're a, a source for some of the best stuff we have at our club or, you know, whatever it is. Okay. Um, but, you know, you uh, casually mentioning it in a way that where it's very clear, you know. Okay. I, I think, think my friend important. Joe Pardo, I think he does something like, hey, yeah. Bill Smith is on today and he's sponsoring this episode to tell us yeah. all about Blasey Blah. Yeah, I think that's fine. I mean, you know. In the uh, old school television or radio world, it would be the following is a paid commercial announcement or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you want to be a little slicker than that. I'm well, sure if they're doing it, but yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I think that's all. I mean, it, you know, some disclosure is better than none and you want to do it as sort of conspicuously and clearly as possible. Um, the, the cases around this stuff mostly deal with something where the, the, announcement is buried mm-hmm. like in a footer on a web page behind a link or something you know you have to here's our disclosures page <laughs> you know that doesn't fly with the government the ftc the fair trade Commission. i was wondering about that because i know of one major podcaster that i know that the guest understands that they will pay blah 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 but mm-hmm. haven't haven't heard the individual ever disclose it in the show so i mm-hmm. i feel like FTC potentially can come down on some of this. Absolutely. And, you know, where it comes up right now, where the FTC does come down on uh, brands and and, uh, media people is where it's an endorsement for a particular product. Usually it's these like a Cyberry 
juice products or, you know, that, that have all these outrageous health claims and oh, yeah. things like that. And, you know, uh, sponsored by, or, you know, endorsed by so-and-so. And then that endorsement is, is bogus. That's one side of it. Or where you've got some host who's just ranting and raving about how great this acai berry juice is for everything. And it cured me of my cancer and da, 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 da. And, never telling anybody that, Oh, they're a sponsor of the show. You know, well, you can almost do that with cannabis, but I guess they're not always paid. <laughs> <laughs> you should grow it in your own backyard. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious. They, they, they ascribe so many things to cannabis that it's sure. ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and, and look, anybody who's making health claims, you know, there's other issues around that. Are you licensed as a professional? Do you have any business making these kinds of claims? You know, I mean, that, that's, there's other kinds of areas where regulation could come into play. But in this space of endorsements, honestly, the, the party that usually ends up getting hit by the government is the brand, not the podcaster or not mm. the influencer. You see it in Twitter and, and, uh, and uh, social media areas as well, where someone will be promoting, you know, some influencer will be promoting a brand. And uh, if the influencer doesn't include the right kinds of disclosures, then the brand gets a fine. Because they have the pockets. Well, they've got the pockets and really, yeah, they have the, the power to say, if you're going to, to promote our brand, do it right or don't do it at all. We're not going to pay you. Okay. And I've had a couple influencers on and I know that speaking to one, mm -hmm. she's talking about how one post can take three months. Yeah, right. And that's you know, to, to negotiate the deal. Well, no, it's just the, back and forth. It goes to the lawyers. You guys mm -hmm. again. Is the verbiage correct? Can you use right. that statement? No, we yeah. don't like that statement. Go to marketing. Then it circles back. Right. Yes. <laughs> Which and I, by then, Kim's no longer married to whoever. <laughs> well, and there's that too. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, you know, and influencers wax and wane. And, and uh, so you hope that when you're starting to talk to the influencers, they're still as or more influential uh, when you when you finally have the deal. Three months is a long time, but it, it does take weeks sometimes. Okay, so now to wrap everything up, I want to end on a positive note. Okay. So, Gordon, I want you to tell us it's all going to be okay. <laughs> it is all going to be okay. The key is sort of knowing and understanding the rules and being able to spot where there's a question and then having someone to reach out to, to ask the question and, and get a, a legitimate answer to. And that's what I'm here for. Well, fantastic. And people can find you at firemark.com. Firemark.com is the law practice. And uh, I mentioned that podcast release form earlier. That's at podcastrelease.com. I also have an ebook called the podcast blog and new media producers, legal survival guide, podcastlawbook.com. If you want to get a copy of that. Do you have it in audio? I don't yet have it in audio. I'm working on that. I actually sat down to start recording it myself a few days ago and realized this is going to be a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're le reading legalese. Reading my own words is a challenge. Uh, well, hey, Gordon, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a lot of fun, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. 
Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Brett Allen, and I am the host of the Open Mic Podcast, where no topic is off limits. Here at the Open Mic, we talk to many different people. We talk to celebrities, entrepreneurs, psychics, celebrities, and everything in between. I would like to encourage you to listen and subscribe. You can learn more about the show at theopenmicpodcast.net. Again, thank you so much. Until next time, cheers and be well. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on because school is now in session. 